Father, uh, we love you. Um, God, we don't deserve your grace. Uh, we don't deserve um, even to be here this morning. Uh, but you poured out your grace on us in Christ. Um, and because of Christ, uh, you look at us as righteous, all those who believe. Uh, so, Father, it's, it's such a joy uh, to be with uh, fellow saints this morning, uh, worshiping you, screaming out praise to you, um, thinking about you, hearing from your word this morning. Uh, Father, what grace it is. Uh, we pray for those around the world that do not get to experience a corporate setting like this. Those in the persecuted church, those that are suffering right now uh, because they're unashamed of you. Uh, Father, would you be their stronghold right now? Would your spirit fill them with unusual amount of strength, unusual amount of faith to endure the suffering that you've asked them to uh, suffer for your name? Pray for their families that are missing them right now and the hurt that they're going through. Uh, Father, would you draw people to Jesus Christ because you asked your saints to suffer? Pray for Spartanburg this morning. Father, as the word goes forth right now across this city, would you draw people to you because of the preached word this morning? Heal families, heal broken relationships, heal addiction, heal hate, heal rebellion. Because of the power of your spirit is going to move through this city through the preached word. Uh, we look forward to it right now with expectation. Uh, Father, you've given um, Richard a word to share with us this morning. And so would uh, he lean on your spirit, lean on your power and not his own? Would you give him a humble confidence to preach the word that you've given to him without shame, knowing that it's from you? And that the purpose of the preached word is to draw people to Jesus Christ. And so may that happen in this room this morning. May it happen in our children's ministry right now. Through the words that are spoken. God, draw people to you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. C.S. Lewis said, if you're looking for a religion to make you feel comfortable, I wouldn't recommend Christianity. The promises of Scripture are filled with immeasurable hope, but the call to leave sin and follow Christ does demand that we deal with very uncomfortable issues in our heart and those in our world. So it's not a comfortable religion. Last time we were together in the book of Luke, we looked at the strangest parable that Jesus ever told. Today, we're going to look at the sternest parable that Jesus ever told. Nowhere in the teachings of Jesus Christ does he talk about eternal suffering more vividly than he does in Luke chapter 16. But everything he says that comes out of his mouth in Luke 16, I am grateful for that he so loves us that he graphically describes the torment of those who reject the values of the kingdom of God, that we might be warned and frightened and therefore persuaded to repent and be saved. 
Luke 16, 19, there was a rich man who was dressed up in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, you need to be reminded that Jesus is telling this story about wealth because in the audience surrounding him, as we saw in verses 13 and 14 of Luke 16 a few weeks ago, were the wealthy teachers and religious civic leaders of the day, the Pharisees, whom Jesus described as people who loved money more than they loved God. So the parable was really for the wealthy in the crowd, and that's why he tells the story. The story is not just about a rich man and a poor man, but the way that Jesus describes it, it's each man is particularly described in his wealth and in his, and in his poverty. The rich man did all that he could to parade his wealth, spending his money in an extravagant manner, excessive luxury. He was the picture of affluent arrogance. He was a different kind of rich man. The beggar was not just poor. He was covered with infected sores. He was so weak he could not move, so weak that the dogs came and licked his open wounds. He was the picture of vulnerability. Luke 16, 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Even the description of their deaths, Jesus finds striking that the rich man even had time for someone to bury him. Nothing is said about the burial for the beggar, his body, where he dropped his body, stayed until he was taken to glory. But the point of the parable is not about their funerals and not about what happened at the time of their death. But the whole point of the parable is what happens after they died because there was a massive reversal. The time came, verse 22, when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away. This is the rich man with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So you need to understand when you read a parable by Jesus, there's always only one point and only one point. It's just needless, wasteful use of time to be chasing down side streets. And so Jesus will often take current thinkings of the day or he'll take a random event and he'll work it in the parable really more for shock value or to, to attract interest because people are already there in their minds. So there was rabbinical legend that people could talk back and forth in uh, the post-life experience. That Jesus says nothing here about heaven and hell. The other parts of the New Testament do. Jesus doesn't. He simply talks about 
two components or two partitions in this place called Hades or the underworld, the dark and shadowy place, sort of a holding tank prior to judgment. So Jesus is simply using existing belief systems in order to make the point. That's not the point. There is no, Jesus is saying, there is no talking between those who've died in heaven and hell. He's simply saying that there is a reversal that occurs between heaven and earth that you see clearly the rich man is now suffering and the man who had nothing and was a beggar is now experiencing eternal comfort. He told the story to make this point. This life is followed by a next life, a final life. The way we respond to God here determines the way that God will respond to us there. The beggar was experiencing comfort. The rich man was experiencing torment, separated forever by some chasm of fire. Luke 16, 26, Between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. Now, they're obviously talking in this parable, so if this man were on fire burning, uh, conversations would be impossible. So I think Jesus is possibly opening the door to saying that he's, or what he's, he's not saying, that, that this, this eternal state is a burning body, but he is painting this picture of chasm, separation, fire, heat, wall, Torment and no possibility of changing your eternal state. Our present decisions are determining our eternal destiny. If we reject God's values for the short time we live on earth, that decision will create an eternity of unending pain. Earthly character determines eternal destiny. But the most important part of the story comes from a statement made by Abraham as he informs the rich man why he is suffering. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now, the reversal He is comforted here, and you are in agony. Now, as you listen to Jesus tell the story, be careful that that he is not making a statement pro-poverty, anti-wealth. I painted, I spent Thursday and Friday, thanks to the gift of February's two kind days, I went to the store and bought paint to paint the exterior of my house. I painted, I got about two-thirds of it done with the help of of Shane Fast. And I spent $60 a gallon on paint because at 58 years old, on a ladder with a right hip that is held together with four surgeries, I don't want to be on that ladder for 10 more years. 
So I'm going to pay $60 a gallon if Sherwin-Williams will tell me you don't have to paint again for 10 years. So I, if that's a wealthy extravagance, then, then woe to me. Jesus is not condemning wealth nor affirming poverty, but he's clearly pointing out that when a starving beggar is slowly dying at the front gate of your property and you were squandering your wealth on needless luxury, you will have to give an account of yourself to God. The rich man was not damned because he had nice clothes and a nice house and enjoyed nice food. He was condemned because he utterly ignored Lazarus and used his wealth only for his gratification. Jesus is not assigning us the responsibility of caring for every beggar in the world, but there are people that he sovereignly, uniquely places in front of our path that we can affect the trajectory of their life. Those people we will answer for. Doing nothing while Lazarus lies at our gate is great wickedness. Alexander McLaren. So the events in this story lead to quite a reversal, don't they? The kind of reversal that was predicted by the mother of Jesus herself when Jesus was born, slightly before he was born, in the Magnificat, Mary said, Luke 1, 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty, fulfilled in Luke 16, predicted by Mary herself. Without question, the most painful part of the man's eternal destiny is his remembering what life was like on earth. Abraham replied, son, remember what life was like on earth. We're going to look at that in a minute. That's a haunting word that's part of eternal torment, the inability to stop your memory. Son, remember. The sweetest words that God can ever say to any sinner in this room, the sweetest words that God has ever said to this very, very sinful pastor are found in Hebrews 8, chapter 12. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That's what he wants to do. the most comforting thought in the world to me. God has seen every action of my body that is evil, every evil thought of my mind, and one day He saw me look at Jesus Christ on the cross. He saw me believe in the Savior, and He sees me every day take another look at the cross of Christ dying for my sins, and He has promised to forget my sins forever. But for those who reject the love of God, for those who in their arrogance believe there is no need to place their faith in a Savior, the most painful aspect of eternal suffering will be the eternal memory. Son, remember your life. 10,000 years times 10,000 years of remembering 
All the opportunities you had to believe, all the chances you were given to repent, all the warnings you heard from so many voices, all the blessings you were given in which you would not give yourself to God, all the pleadings from your parents, all the lessons from leaders at church, and especially God will say to everyone in this room today, remember that day when a man stood on that stage at Oak Brook and he will say to you, remember that message. And for eternity, you will remember today. And there will be nothing to distract memory in eternity. Our conscience will remember everything for the unbeliever. The great promise of the gospel made possible by the shed blood of Jesus Christ is that every sin that is confessed will be forgiven, covered from God's eyes, and on the day that you will die, it will be fully removed from your memory. And we love every hint of the great gospel that we saw last fall as we preached to the minor prophets in Micah chapter 7. God, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And that's what God wants to do with every person who hears those words today to provide a sea of grace, an ocean of love, an ocean of blood of Christ where justice has already been carried out against your sin in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you can throw all of your sins in that ocean and they will be remembered no more. That's his offer today to everybody who believes the gospel of Christ, believes the death and resurrection of Christ. Even today, I stand before you right now as I'm preaching to you. It's amazing what happens when you preach. I have so many things going through my mind right now. I'm preaching this sermon. I have other things on my mind. I'm thinking about some things I need to do this week while I'm talking to you. I'm also thinking about sins I committed as a teenager right now. So I can remember some of the sins of my past partially, but not with a sense of condemnation. No, I see every one of those sins stamped with the word, every one of those sins of my high school and college years and even this year, <clears throat> screaming at my daughter's dog when she put her mouth in my paint. Not nice words. Shane Fast asked me, do you need me? <laughs> no, I'm not screaming at you. Screaming at a dog. Every one of those sins stamped with the word forgiven. Floating powerlessly farther and farther down in an ocean of Christ's love. Farther and farther and farther down to the bottom of the ocean of grace. I see myself sitting in a boat on a beautiful, calm, blue ocean, beneath a canopy, a blue sky, a gentle breeze, and there in that boat, Jesus Christ and me talking about life. I see His sin, I see His scarred hands and penetrating life, giving love and energy in His eyes, and I hear words from His mouth about His plans to use me February 2019 in his kingdom and 
his plans to use me across town and the new location of Asheville Highway and his delight when everybody comes to the business meeting at 4 o'clock this afternoon. And then I see dolphins that he created swimming by our boat, responding to his voice as he calls them to our little boat. So yes, at this present time, I can remember some sins of my past, but not in a condemning way. For I have a Savior in that boat who's died for every one of those sins and has cast them into the depths of the sea. But my friends, be warned, if you insist on covering your sins in a sea of self-righteousness, there will be a day with one word where Jesus Christ will drain your sea and drain that ocean of self-reliance and all the great peaks all the way to the bottom of that seabed will be drained dry. And at the day you stand before God, He will say to you, Son, remember everything. As the rich man began to experience his unending suffering, not only did he remember his own sins, he remembered the sinful lifestyle of his family who was still living. Luke 16, 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus, the beggar, to my family, for I have five brothers, and and let Lazarus warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. This is a very interesting passage. The beggar that he ignored all his life and regarded as valueless property, not even property, owned his property. Now he wants to send that man to warn his family. Abraham suggests another plan for his brother's salvation. Abraham replied, they have the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament. They have Holy Scripture Let them listen to preachers. Let them listen to the Word of God preached. Abraham says there's no need to send Lazarus. There's nothing more powerful than the Word of God. Nothing more powerful in all of life than what we're doing on Sunday morning. This is where life change occurs. The Bible can be understood by anyone. It was intentionally written at a fifth grade level by God. It will change the life of everyone who wants to know and do the will of God. The rich man disagrees. Even now he disagrees in his place of torment. No, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. The rich man believes it's not enough what we do here on Sunday morning. There needs to be some entertainment. Get the drama ministry going. My goodness, Hunter, why don't you sing a secular song and whip us into a frenzy? Because this preaching about Jesus is not enough. You can do something else. No. No. What if somebody goes back from the dead? That's what will wake up Spartanburg. So I think Jesus included this to say, nope, that's not going to work because, number one, I'm not going to send Lazarus back because we have the Scripture. But 
I got to do one better than that. Just to prove my point, I'm going to go back from the dead. And they still won't listen. Because the rich man in hell is representative of the Jewish leaders that Jesus was trying to reach in Luke 16, verses 13 and 14. So Jesus does send someone back from the dead to reach the rich Pharisees in Luke 16. And the Bible says even when Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead and went back to those Pharisees, they still did not believe in a resurrection appearance. The rich man was in hell and his brothers would soon join him. Not because they did not know what they were doing was wrong, because they would not choose what they already knew was right. The fault is never with the insufficiency of God's warnings, but with man's determination to resist the will of God. It's not like the rich man was unaware of the vulnerability of the beggar. Was he unaware of the vulnerability of the beggar? No, he just didn't care that the beggar died. Hear that. It's, main, it's my main thesis for the rest of the message. He was aware he didn't care if the vulnerable died. He knew exactly what he was doing. The year 2019 will be a profoundly special year for the United States of America on God's calendar. In an unprecedented way, political leaders have sought to use their power and influence for the purpose of killing children that are far more vulnerable than poor Lazarus at the rich man's gate. If you were grieved today that the rich man did nothing while vulnerable Lazarus died, then you will be sickened beyond measure over the efforts of abortionists and politicians to kill living babies as Never before, and like the rich man of Luke 16, they know exactly what they are doing. When I was a young pastor trying to speak on behalf of truth for the sanctity of life issues that come out of Scripture, the abortion debate was so much different than it is now. When I was in the 80s and the 90s, all of the arguments were about the concept of viability. So I would preach year after year and sermon after sermon trying to persuade people. This is basically the argument. This is where I was as a young pastor that the pro-choice movement would basically wanted to argue that Abortions were okay at a certain point because prior to this, babies were not viable. That is, babies could not live if they were prematurely 
born at whatever age you would say of the fetus, 22, 23 weeks old as a fetus. And so that was primarily the arguments everybody was arguing about, viability. And so they were saying, when does a child become a human being? And so they were saying, if the child was viable, if the child could live, if a prematurely born child could live and was viable, he was a human being. If a premature child could not born was you know, was born but had, was not old enough as a fetus could not live outside the womb, he was not yet a human being. And so they were masterful in their ability to persuade many many women, you are not killing a human being because they're not yet a human being. So many many precious women were deceived with this argument. And so, of course, an argument for me as a Bible teacher and just a thinking person was nonsensical because there's never been a point in my life where I was not me. I may have been a little me, but I was always me. Uh, I may have been an undeveloped me, but even at eight weeks, I was me. I had, a, at eight weeks, I had a functioning brain and a beating heart, and my kidneys were already filtering blood. I had a fingerprint, and by 12 weeks, I was a thumb sucker. That's 12 weeks. So I was always me. There was never a point in life. Just even every thinking person would arrive at that. Have, have, was there ever a point where I was not me? I was always me. Just got to be a bigger me. So we warned people in the 80s and 90s, if you go down that road and start taking the lives of you know, 22-week-old babies and 20-week-old babies and 18-week-old babies, you won't stop. That we were arguing that you, you'll just get you'll press for one week more and one week more, and nobody listened to the point where we are today. The horrible distance that we have traveled, that we're just like the rich man in Luke chapter sixteen. That now we know exactly what we're doing. That he knew that there was a full-grown human being outside of his gates. And he simply did not care that that man, a fully alive person, died. We're just like the people in Luke 16. Last week, or the last week of January 2019, a Virginia lawmaker proposed Bill House 2491, in which she asked for that a woman to be given the, the choice for a late-term abortion, to be in law for mental health reasons, which would have included any reasons that a doctor verified on site that this woman is experiencing mental health stress. So that means for any reason that a woman would tell a doctor and a doctor signed, you are having a bad day mentally at any point up to 40 weeks, you can have 
and abortion. I just want you to see the dialogue on the State House floor in Virginia. It's only one minute long. And it's just political dialogue. I want you to see this took place in the United States of America because I know you don't know. How late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the, of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay. But to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, um, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman would I understand make that. that. I'm asking point. if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that, yes. We know what we are doing. Maybe not in the 80s, 90s. Maybe it got foggy. You know what you just heard. I know the video is uncomfortable to watch. Much more uncomfortable to be a baby if you don't watch it. Much more uncomfortable to be a woman who's talked into an abortion. So have you watched the video for the sake of babies who will suffer and women who will suffer because the scripture is clear? Proverbs 31.8, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Will you speak up with me for these precious lives? Luke 16, for the beggar who lies outside the gate of the rich man and the powerful in Washington, D.C., and in all the state capitals. For the little babies and for the women who will be tortured with guilt as soon as their money is taken, we speak up for them because we know what we are doing as a nation. Now we know. If you want to know, well, hasn't this always been possible? Well, Roe v. Wade and the, the bill that came after that in 1973, Doe, did make this possible. But now pro-abortionists are scared that with the recent appointments and future appointments of new justices on the Supreme Court, that Roe v. Wade may be overturned. So states are seeking to do all they can to be ready to fight at a state level if the federal law is overturned in the Supreme Court. They want power at the state level if the federal law is overturned by the Supreme Court. That's why the states, five so far, have done what this woman 
proposed. When Ben Sass of Nebraska saw this video, he went to the Senate floor in Washington, D.C. to propose what is called the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act in the U.S. Senate. We'll call it the Born Alive Act. And the bill seeks to protect infants who survived a botched abortion. So all he's asking is, if a baby makes it into the world, survived an abortion, and the child is living, all he was asking is, this is quote, the bill states that any infant born alive after an abortion at a hospital will have the same claim to the protection of the law that would arise for any other newborn or any other person that comes to a hospital and would be given the same rights as any person within the hospital's care. All he's asking is that human being born would be helped to stay alive. And all he said is, can we agree unanimous consent if the baby makes it and is living and on the table? Doctors have to do everything at that point to save the living baby. It did not pass. We know what we are doing now. Only 26 states of the of the 52 states, uh, 26 states of the, of the United States, 26 of the great states of the United States, only 26 states will require that a doctor save the life. Only 26 states require specific affirmative duty by physicians to provide medical care to infants born in botched abortions. Only 26 states require that a doctor care and keep a child alive after a botched abortion. Only 26 states require it. We know what we are doing. How can it be that in the same hospital, radical measures taken to save the life of a fetus born at 24 weeks, radical measures to save the life of a fetus at 24 weeks, in one operating room, in another operating room, will allow a healthy baby to lay on an operating table left alone to die. When the unborn are wanted, they are treated as children. When the unborn are wanted, they are treated as children and patients. When they are unwanted, they are not children. We know what we are doing. In New York, <clears throat> a born alive protection law was on the books until two weeks ago. Thanks to Governor Cuomo and the legislature, they passed the Reproductive Health Act. Said for any reasons, by the request of the mother, for virtually any reason, abortion up until birth is possible. Even the abortion can be performed now by non-doctors. When the law passed, members of the legislature cheered. Governor Cuomo said this is a historic day for New Yorkers, and I hope that Roe v. Wade can one day become a part of the United States Constitution. 
And then the Democratic governor directed the One World Trade Center and other landmarks, the top of the tower to be lit in pink to celebrate the passage of law for the killing of children. We know what we are doing. To Governor Cuomo, to all politicians who cheered in the New York legislature the day this law was passed, to all abortionists who pray daily on vulnerable women and helpless babies, you know what you are doing. And like the rich man in Luke 16, there will be a day when everything is reversed. You are powerful and wealthy now. Babies are despised and disposable now, but there will be a day where you will stand before God and he will say to you, remember. And you will remember every warning you mocked, every scripture you ignored, and for 100 million years you will remember everything and you will suffer in agony. And all the babies who were nothing to you will be comforted in the presence of Jesus and every eternal blessing God intended for them will be experienced and enjoyed. For everyone in this room today that says, I was part of an abortion, I knew what I was doing, I knew what I was doing was wrong, I will tell you that that is exactly why Jesus Christ came to earth, to die on a cross for the very choice that you made to make it, to make it possible for you and your child to be united in heaven through the power of His innocent and infinite blood. All of us in this room today knew exactly what we were doing when we sinned and when we sinned. That is what makes a sinner a sinner. We know what we are doing when we sin. And that is why Jesus Christ came for sinners. And anyone who will admit that simple truth to Jesus Christ, he will respond with the same message, I will remember your sins no more. I want to tell everybody in this room today, if you want to be forgiven for something you have done, now is your chance. Those words changed the life of April Hernandez Castilla. She played the role of Eva Benitez in the movie The Freedom Riders. She was 19 years old, pregnant. She had an abortion after coming out of anesthesia. She knew she had taken the life of somebody inside of her. She walked outside the abortion clinic. Somebody told her, you're going to go to hell. She said, I know I am. Over the next few years, she numbed herself by throwing herself into her career. She was a growing actress in Hollywood, fell in love with somebody in New York City. She went to his church one Sunday morning. And at the end of the message, the pastor said, if you want to be forgiven for something you have done, now is your chance. She said her right arm shot up as high as it could out of her socket. And she said, it is like I was trying to rip heaven open so that I could grab hold of God. And she cried out loud in that church, I want to be forgiven of my abortion. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. She fell on the floor of the church that day in a fetal position And she heard the sweet voice of God say to her, I forgive you and I love you. You can read about her story in her film, Your Choice, Your Voice, a story of resiliency and redemption. Today, she and her story are raising, today, she and her husband are raising their two beautiful little girls who are teaching them to be women who love the Lord. 
I heard her story when she was interviewed by John Enzor, president of Passion for Life. He interviewed her. He interviewed also a woman named Jean Pernia. She ran an abortion clinic in Miami along with a boyfriend. When Jean became pregnant, she told with joy, told her boyfriend, co-owner of the clinic, I'm pregnant. He said, now is not a good time. You need to go down to the clinic we run. She did. She had an abortion. When she was in the recovery room that day, again, knowing she had taken life, she simply cried out to God, please let me be a mother again someday. She stuffed that memory down and that guilt down for 27 years, which if you're an abortion counselor, you've heard that story many times. John Enzor, the guy interviewing her, he's president of Passion Life, came to her church in Miami 27 years later to tell Miami that you have 37 abortion business clinics in Miami. You need to do something about it. She was looking for an exit as fast as she could. But like many of you here, you know exactly what this message is, what you need to hear to start dealing with this. So she stayed. She didn't run. When the service was over, she came to him and said, I need you to help me stop what I started. I was the first in Miami, and now there's 37. These clinics are all my seeds. And so John Ensworth said, well, you need to find a clinic. You know where they are, and you need to put up a crisis pregnancy center, a care pregnancy center as close as you can, right next to one. So she did that. She found a, a space for rent right next door to the building that she used to use for an abortion clinic. And it became so successful. So many women received mercy and help in that clinic that they had to expand. And you know where they expanded? The other building went vacant, and the very building that she had for so many years used as an abortion clinic now became the new crisis pregnancy center. You know where her office was? Where her office is now? It's in the recovery room. It's in the... It's in the recovery room where 37 years earlier, where 37 years earlier she said, God, could you please let me be a mother again? And 10 years after they began that clinic, they have saved 35,000 babies. And she has three children and nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. And in that very building that was once a building of death, by the power of Jesus Christ, is now a building for life. And if you're a man here today and you've been part of an abortion, can I just remind you of three great names in the Old Testament? A man named Moses, and a man named King David, and a man named the Apostle Paul. All three of these men took innocent life. And these are three men that God used to shape the whole world in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Three men took life. And these are the men that have shaped history. History for the coming of Christ. The only answer for the weight of abortion is the gospel of Jesus Christ through Jesus. Innocent blood has been shed that will cover innocent blood that we've shed. If you want to be forgiven for something you've done, now is your chance.
Let's pray. Oh, Father. God. Would you please set someone free today? Would you please set someone free? Bring them to Jesus, God, so he can bring them to their baby, so he can cleanse their heart, so he can stamp on every one of their sins forgiven, so he can bury it in the bottom of the ocean of grace, so he'll remember their sins no more and take them to a place where they'll remember their sins no more. This is their day, God, to be set free. This is their day. We thank you for innocent and innocent blood of Christ that covers all the innocent blood we've shed in the land. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we come for our redemption and our cleansing, our freedom and our joy. Amen. Would you stand with us again?